you to have the perfect spouse he uh that uh, he wants you to have the perfect job he wants you to have the perfect health and uh, not be afraid of anything just have everything just go hunky-dory uh that is not the life that uh dode known by most as david lived certainly not the life that moshe lived and there have never been two better people than those Um, right god did not Mm -hmm. and does not say that he's going to cure us of every bug or ache or pain. You know, I'd like my eyes to be back to 2020 so that I, I don't need to wear glasses. I, I'd like my knees to be as they were when I was 20 years old, not when I'm, well, more than that today. But guess what? Dealing with things like a sore throat this evening <laughs> is, is part of life. You know, you, you have to have the fortitude to try to overcome um, it it builds character it brings it builds resolve and if yeah. God made the lives of those who were covenant perfect perfect spouse perfect children 
perfect siblings, perfect parents, perfect home, perfect job, perfect health, then he would essentially be bribing us. And you would have huge numbers of people join the covenant just for the perks. So it can't be that way. And, um, and it isn't that way. Uh, I was telling uh, uh, Kirk and Dee before the show began that the last uh, month or so has, uh, has been um, tumultuous. Uh, I don't think um, I could have processed it well if I had uh, confronted what we have seen in the last four to six weeks. Uh, for those who haven't done so yet, and I'm, if you're new to this program, you're new to Yada Yawa, please don't start here. Um, but I'm going to tell you where, where, uh, where I am currently in, in this process. If you're new to this program, I would encourage you to start with uh, any one of the three introductions to God, uh, any one of the, the books in the early part of the Yada Yawa series. Uh, but we, we've been doing this now for 20 years. I think that much earlier than 20 years, we would have come to a, uh, a difficult place in the road, a challenge, uh, overcoming the ultimate sore throat, so to speak. And we did. Uh, it's the book of Daniel. Um, the first six chapters of Daniel are simply not true. Uh, and the best explanation for them is that they present the horrifying rise of Judaism and Christianity and that their politicized and religious nature uh, reveals God's disdain, Christianity and Judaism. But the prophecy of that book, the final six chapters, beginning 7 through 12, um, with particularly if you pull out uh, Daniel's personal commentary, uh, the prophecies are astute. Uh, and we have no conclusion other than they were inspired by God because, well, there is extant copies of Daniel dating into the second century BCE, and there are events in these prophecies that describe what happened in the uh, the first century uh, BCE, first century CE, and second century CE, and all the way up to things that are beginning to uh, shape uh, our tomorrow. And so the prophetic revelations are true. But in Daniel, there is a, uh, a rather extraordinary set of circumstances, and that is that the three individuals that bring those prophecies to uh, Daniel are well known. We know them. Uh, the primary prophet is given the name or title Gabriel. It's the most capable and courageous man of God. A Gabar is a man, and the Gabriel is God's most 
capable and competent individual. Person's Dode. And so the real prophet of Daniel is Dode. And right. to a lesser degree, Elia, who is uh, one of the last two witnesses. And the guy kind of bringing everybody together and trying to uh, shake some sense into Daniel is a uh, fellow that is given the title Makael, which means the person who speaks and shares the truth about God. He's the other witness. And so you can take the prophetic portions and say, those guys know what they're talking about. And you can take the earlier passages and say they're upside down and twisted and religious and political because they are prophetic of what Israel would become. Turn the page. Open the book of Ezekiel. <coughs> and now we have a, a problem of a, an entirely different order. The vision of God is not of God. It's of Satan. Wow. Um, so that's a tough way to start. Now, yeah. We're prepared for it because when Daniel has the experience where he allegedly sees this vision of God, he is not only <laughs> seeing the vision of Satan, his experience is prophetic of what Paul would claim on the road to Damascus. The scenes are almost identical. It wow. prepares us to rebuke Paul. But there is no such insight with Ezekiel's vision, which reflects Babylonian astrology. And both visions speak of a resurrected corpse. They're bizarre. So then as you, you move through Ezekiel, um, the grammar's not very good. And it's, it's, it's tough to translate because the grammar's not very good. And, and you go, and what you find is there's constantly Yahweh is being called my Lord, Yahweh. And sometimes Adonai, my Lord, is actually put in Yahweh's voice. Or Yahweh is calling himself my Lord. Okay. Wow. So it's, it's not true. Not believable. You have to do with it. And what I finally came to realize is the reason we have both names is it's our job to figure out what's coming from the Lord and what's coming from Yahweh. And as the story progresses, you've got a, a, this constant rebuke of Judaism and of religion. And then this uh, goes to um, a presentation where it is astonishingly bizarre. A hypothetical country and a hypothetical set of circumstances and these uh, beasts that devour on the, the children of parents. You know, they prey on children, leaving them bereaved. Ah, but if there was just these three men, it would all be kosher. And they are Noach, not Daniel, but Daniel, and Job. Job. 
And so you're you're reading this, and it, and it's such a bizarre story, and the and the things attributed to these men are just flat out not true. I mean, there there isn't five percent of it that's accurate. And it, then you're you're compelled to say, well, okay, no unknown quantity up to a point. Stories told in the Torah, we know what uh, he did. He lived apart from society. <clears throat> yeah, well, liked him, thought he was the best man available to do a job. Uh, God gave him instructions on how to uh, build a, uh, a very large uh, boat. He uh, did as God requested, and, uh, and uh, it's a marvelous story of what happens when you listen to God and do as he said. But to call Noah right, we have no basis to do that. Before the Torah, before the Mikra, before the Covenant, we don't have any insights that suggest that he knew these things and was right about them. And then you get to Daniel. Well, Daniel's a scallywag. I mean, he's a horrible man. He is political. He is religious. He's self-indulgent. <laughs> he doesn't understand anything that is being revealed to him. And he's constantly making up stories, uh, lion's dens, a complete farce. Hmm. And, and so to call him right is to say, I've never read the book. I don't know Yahweh. I don't know right from wrong. But then to include Job, Job, and you go, wait a minute. First of all, why would you put an alleged Jewish prophet sandwiched in between uh, two non-Jews, two non-prophets? Hmm. Why would you do that? And why would you mention a man who is the only outlier in, uh, in the whole story? If you, if you want to think that Job is true for a moment, when did he live? Where did he live? Oh, it says that he no, lived in Ooze. Well, he might as well lived in the Emerald City of Oz, for all we know. There's no such place. <laughs> we have no idea who, uh, who he was related to. None. So if he had been in the time prior to Noah, after Noah, before Abraham, after Abraham, before Moses... Why wouldn't his name have been mentioned in that story? God talks about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Doesn't mention him, does he? If he was after Moshe, then why isn't his life chronicled along with the, uh, yeah. the people of God throughout you know, books like Kings or Chronicles or Samuel or mm-hmm. any of them? They're among them. Why isn't he like Caleb? So clearly, he's not part of God's story. And of course, he is not right. He's, he's actually belligerent towards God. You know, infers that God is being grossly uh, unfair to him. Yeah. But the worst part of that book is God's response. God never responds to, uh, to Job. No, he belittles him. He says, you're a stupid human. Of course, you wouldn't know anything about what it's like to be God. Don't be bellyaching to me, you idiot. That's what he says. 
God being rude, demeaning his creation, if you want to believe it's God speaking to him. And of course, then after a long rant of I did this and I did that, God goes off and says, uh, were you with me when I killed the behemoth and the, and the great dragon? Well, come on. <laughs> and even the, the language that it's written in, it's doesn't get anything that we read anywhere else. No. It's not true. Not a single prophecy in it to validate it in any way. So, you have to recognize, and, and it is more to it than, than that, the uh, book of Esther's not uh, not inspired by God. The Maccabees is not inspired by God. Enoch is clearly not inspired by God. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I would say, virtually certain that Ecclesiastes and the, uh, the Song of Solomon were not inspired by God. Clearly the New Testament, not inspired by God, none of it. In a position where, you, where we're required to think, there's a reason that God gave us the test through Moshe in Dabadim, Deuteronomy, that tells us how to determine whether someone is speaking for God or not. And we have to even be careful then as we apply it to uh, a book like Ezekiel, where we are dealing with the Babylonian effect. What does Babel mean to intermix truth and lies for the purpose of confusing? So if you've got a book like Daniel or Ezekiel that are in Babylon, where the prism is distorted so that truth and lies are mixed together, you have very limited number of choices. They are, well, put it in the Bible, and lots of people think it's inspired, so it must be the Word of God. Well, then you're going to believe that Enoch is the Word of God, and you're going to believe that the Christian New Testament is the Word of God, and you're going to be religious, and you're not going to have a clue as to who God actually is. Not a very good choice. The other is you could say, well, like the scholars, it's totally spurious. It was written, you know, hundreds of years uh, after the specific time, and that it uh, is uh, has no value other than entertainment value. Well, then you're not going to learn anything from it. And if you're going to take that attitude, you'll you'll uh, find yourself soon applying it to everything you read. That's not a very good choice either. And yet, there are truth and lies mixed together. I mean, Daniel gets a ton of stuff wrong, history wrong. I mean, how can he be a prophet yeah. if you can't even accurately report on contemporaneous yeah, history? history? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in Ezekiel, it's tough, though. They're mixed together. Uh, are you going to have enough confidence to say, I know this is a person that's revered as a prophet, God didn't say that. It is the very essence of, uh, I think, what God is expecting of us. Um, it has to think. Yeah. yeah, to think. Yeah. To exercise our nasama, our conscience, to deduce between truth and fiction, um, good and bad, right and wrong. Uh, but that is um, that's where we find ourselves, and 
And for uh, those listening to this program, if, if you've been in the covenant for a while and you're, you're um, ready to digest some uh, more challenging material, read the opening chapter of Volume 9. It's called Babel Confusion. Read the opening chapter, as I, uh, um, which I wrote maybe when I was halfway through uh, translating Daniel. I think I turned to uh, the, either the ninth or tenth chapter, um, and as I was ninth, ninth chapter, I believe, and as I was uh, translating it, and I was dealing with uh, something that was obviously untrue. Uh, I didn't want to skirt the issue, and and uh, and then I went back and said, let's. Let's rewrite this introduction and um, and be honest with our readers. But take a read of it. Um, uh, if you are religious, the very notion that somebody says, well, the Christian New Testament is wholly unreliable, there's more variations than there are words, uh, much of it is, uh, is wholly inconsistent with the time. Uh, that it was uh, presented. I mean, that whole passion play around Pontius Pilate and the uh, uh, him uh, judging him and saying he's innocent, but I'm going to still beat him to uh, to death, and and the Jews conspiring to kill him. And none of it happened. I mean, none of it happened that way, and it couldn't have happened that way. And if you're told that uh, that. Paul is condemned by Yahweh as the plague of death, and and that you have to uh, think your way through it. it. They can't process that because for a religion they have to have what the uh, what Muslims claim. They claim that the Quran is perfect. There's only one variation of it. There's no t- other translations. It's exactly as uh, Allah inspired it. Of course, that's utter nonsense because uh, a the Arabic as a written language, uh, only goes back to the 7th, 8th century CE. Uh, Muhammad was illiterate. Uh, the Quran itself talks about the fact that there are so many variations of it that no one could remember which one was right. <laughs> and, of course, it has more contradictions than it has words. Uh, but nonetheless, they will that. tell you that it is a perfect thing. <laughs> and that's what you have to tell a person of faith, because... Otherwise, uh, the uh, the gears uh, flip off their cocks. But we're not people of faith. We have no beliefs. We're people who search for the truth, strive to understand it. We come to God through evidence and reason. We come to know him through evidence and reason. And as a result learning that some things can be trusted and other things can not is an opportunity to grow, to become more circumspect, to think, um, and to approach Yahweh as he wants to be approached, by thinking thoughtful individuals. So anyway, that's been my experience, and I wanted to share that uh, with you. We have a, a few items in the news before we return to uh, where we were. Uh, one is that uh, earlier in the week there was the uh, polls were screaming bloody murder and said, oh, the Russians, the Russians are sending missiles in. Russian missiles hit us. 
Uh, sorry, it wasn't a Russian missile. It was a Ukrainian missile. And uh, the U.K., now they do have something to cry about. Um, the U.K. is a barometer because unlike uh, the rest of uh, the EU or the United States, it's very difficult for the U.K. standing alone now to hide what it has done to its currency and its economy in the, uh, in the great uh, COVID uh, overreaction, followed by uh, the uh, insane sanctions uh, against Russia as a result of uh, the desire to make the Ukraine part of NATO. And as a result, the UK inflation is now at a 41-year high. It's 11% wow. rising. Uh, in the United States, it's obvious that it's uh, beyond that. I mean, if you go to the grocery store and you look yeah. at what you paid for things a year ago and two years ago and what you're paying now, uh, it's just that the United States is not honest. It's reporting, uh, and, uh, and they are. They have no place yeah. to uh, hide any of this. Speaking of not being honest and uh, telling the truth, uh, long before the uh, last election, the President of the United States and his administration had uh, told the, through the State Department, had told uh, Justice to uh, exonerate uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed of uh, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, saying that uh, he had diplomatic immunity and he could not be sued. Uh, it was announced today. But, of course, they squelched the story until after the elections. But it is, that is pretty sick. And to say that, that no one can sue him because he has diplomatic immunity is to say that no head of state can be charged with any crime. You know, they desperately want to accuse Putin of war crimes, but I'm sorry, head of state, diplomatic immunity. <laughs> If you're going to say it for the guy that just happens to fill your SUVs with gas, then you've got to say it with the guy that uh, is uh, on the cusp of nuking your country. Yep. There's a story out of the Ukraine now, too, that uh, uh, they were claiming war crimes, war crimes, Russia's terrible, Russia's bad. Well, the uh, UN has now done a systematic review of war crimes in that theater. And guess what? It's not just the Russians that are torturing prisoners. It's also the Ukraine. Yeah, the yeah. Ukraine is also torturing prisoners. And when we speak of torture, the United States is uh, one of the leading advocates of torture in the world now. Uh, mm -hmm. And any organization that uses torture is... Uh, is despicable. That's why the Roman Catholic Church, for uh, much of its existence, was one of the great developers of torturous devices and uh, um, used torture to control its uh, citizenry. They were sadistic. Uh, and um, now we find that both the Ukraine, Russia, and the United States are all using uh, torture. A uh, couple of other interesting uh, items in the news. You know, China went to this uh, one-child uh, policy. You know, they were going to 
uh, stop mm-hmm. the rapid growth of China so that you know their economy could catch up to the population. Well, now that uh, China has um, become more communistic here uh, in the last 10 years so that there really is no incentive for anybody to do anything, uh, the Chinese are, are not having babies. Their population is actually shrinking. And there's this now this, this social media theme across China showing people just giving up and no longer working, lounging around, because there's no incentive to do anything. Welcome to the uh, you know, world of, of socialized living. Yep. Um, <clears throat> there was a research study out of uh, Israel, um, quite definitive, um, peer-reviewed, that uh, demonstrates that over a very, very short period of, uh, of time, um, 1973 uh, is the beginning of this study to uh, 2018. So essentially 50 years, right? Hmm. You know, <laughs> that that's 50 years. 40, yeah. <laughs> Sperm count has in men has decreased between 50 and 60 percent. Wow. Between 50 and 60 percent over the last 50 years. Uh, as a matter of fact, their 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 published results show 62 percent degradation in uh, in sperm. Due to drugs or alcoholism? No. They say it's a lot of, uh, of things. Um, drugs is uh, part of it. Um, uh, part of it is that uh, men have stopped being men. Yeah. You know, men are becoming far more effeminate. Um, you, know, you look at the Herodim, they've got to be the most effeminate men ever. Uh, so men becoming uh, more effeminate, um, uh, um, society becoming um, softer, if you will. Um, lots of uh, lots of reasons. Uh, you know, dropping testosterone. Uh, speaking of uh, of that, there's uh, more noise out on transgender. Transgender, I uh, I view as one of the great tragedies of our uh, of our time. Uh, and okay. it becomes so significant that even to talk about it, you, you don't talk about somebody being born a boy or girl, which you know, essentially 100% of people are born boys or girls. Uh, you um, have to say the sexual identity assigned at birth. <laughs> and that if you're pursuing a different identity, you're affirming your sexuality. Uh, and a very significant number of the people having the transgender surgery are young teens, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Don't have developed judgment, don't have much experience. Most, most are sad. They just don't have the skills to fit in, you know, too much... Uh, time on the uh, the computer and first-person games and the like, and they don't have social skills, and 
they feel sad and rejected and don't know how to deal with it and think that, well, if I change my identity, you know, things will be better. But, of course, they aren't better. They're worse. Because if you were born a boy and you decide you want to be a girl, you're less equipped to be a girl than you were a boy. <laughs> also, it's interesting that somewhere in the range of five to seven times, more girls want to be boys than boys want to be girls. Um, and a huge part of the uh, of it is mutilation, where the uh, mm. the girls who want to be boys, teenage girls, uh, have um, detitters, is what they call themselves. Oh, detitters. Okay. They go into the doctor and they have their breasts lopped off. And they're so proud of themselves when they take testosterone that uh, they grow hair on their chest. What a, uh, a wicked world we, uh, we live in. The last item in the news, well, it's actually two. I'll, I'll say the, the least important first and then go on to the second. Uh, in spite of the dropping, plunging sperm counts uh, the world over, um, this past week the world's population um, reached 8 billion. So there are now 8 billion souls on this planet with uh, fewer than one in a million of them being part of the covenant and knowing Yahweh. The saddest item in the news, in my view, is uh, Israeli politics. If there ever were a land of, uh, of kooks, nuts, and criminals, it's Israeli politics. Uh, they have a parliamentary system, which uh, I have spoken out against uh, for decades now because all it is is, uh, uh, is forming alliances through bribes. And you now have the uh, uh, two exceedingly crazy individuals uh, that are part of the religious Zionist movement. Um, you know, they're wearing their... their uh, uh, Kippas and oh man, they are—they are fundamental Jews. They are super ultra orthodox, and they're just crazy. I mean, they—they're uh, now the United States went way beyond what it should have done. The United States actually says that to Israel that you need to appoint uh, cabinet ministers uh, that we can work with, <laughs> not that that you want to work with, that we can work with. Boy, we are imposing of our will, aren't we? Um, but these guys all want positions, like, you know, the religious parties in Israel seldom serve in the IDF. But they want one of their own to be defense minister. What a disgrace. The, the guy that wants to be finance minister is a, uh, a guy that has... Uh, twice convicted of, of financial fraud. Oh, he, he served two years no. in prison for uh, bribery when he was uh, Minister of the Interior. He was bribed to spend two years in prison, uh, got the tag of moral perpetuity put on him. And then this past year, he uh, took a plea deal on tax evasion. And 
So since such people can't serve as ministers in the Israeli government, Netanyahu, to put together his government so he can be King Bibi, wants to override the judicial branch. And they have proposed legislation that says that the Knesset, by majority vote, can override any decision of the judiciary. And so the judiciary's decision to preclude a twice-convicted felon from being head of finance for Israel, uh, he's also a fundamentalist religious nincompoop, he's head of the Shah's party, uh, is their, their plan. Imagine being so desperate for power that you would destroy your country's integrity. That's where Israel is. And that's kind of what we would expect of Israel. Um, because, quite frankly, uh, they're nearing the time of Jacob's troubles. And for the next what, 11 years, they're going to be unlovable. <coughs> All right. Um, I'm going to jump back in where we left off uh, last time. And uh, uh, Kirk and uh, Dee, if uh, my voice mm-hmm. uh, doesn't uh, last, I'll let you you read from the chapter, and I'll, uh, I'll make some uh, comments. Um, okay. <coughs> we were talking about the fact that, that uh, Yahweh despises Judaism. And it should be known that those who have consumed its toxicity and shared it will be among the first to die when Yahweh returns. He says that they will be crushed to death by the worthless edifice of their words. The whitewashing and smearing over of the Torah and prophets with their Talmud and Zohar is a crime, one that will cost religious Jews their soul. Now, be careful. Context is king. God despises Christianity, and he despises Islam, and he is disgusted by progressives that want bigger government and more control and influence over people. Uh, but the reason he goes out of his way to condemn Judaism more than any other entity is because it's had the greatest derogatory effect on his people. Now, we read a section from Ezekiel, uh, I think the 12th chapter in our last program, and it was introduced by a rabbinical quote that said it was shrouded in mystery. And that it was a great conundrum. But the religious Jews might say, hey, now, we're not claiming to be prophets, so it doesn't apply to us. Well, as I was dealing with that, uh, an article was published by Arutz Sheba. uh, As I was literally editing the chapter, it was written by Rabbi David Sampson, published uh, 26-6-22, June 26, mm-hmm. 2022. It was under the title, The Land of Prophecy. It reads, if we had a Geiger counter to measure the divine presence in Israel, it would crackle loudly, while outside of Israel, it would hardly be heard. 
Boy, aren't we egotistical. When the classical Magid, Magid is a uh, itinerant Jewish preacher whose discourse on a biblical text is usually embellished by parables drawn from the rabbinical commentaries and from Jewish folklore. Uh, the Magid often delivers their commentaries in a religious chant. I can tell you that Yahweh has no Magid, but the rabbis do. When the celestial Magid, oh, this is the heavenly Magid, appeared to Rabbi Yosef Karo on Shabbat night, he instructed Rabbi Karo and his study partners to make Aliyah. Aliyah is from Al, over and above. Yeah. That's uh, not good. So, that their divine conversation could continue. The Vilna Gaon explained that the reason the author of the Shulchan Aruch was able to have a Magid was because he lived in Eretz, the land of Yisrael. Mm-hmm. This is the introduction of Rav Kaim Velozner to the commentary of Gion on Shafra di Teznuta. I don't recall that address as I was reading the Torah Prophets and Psalms. <laughs> Nonetheless, I digress. While the Magid first appeared, while the Bayet Yosef, Rabbi Karo, still lived in Turkey. Oh, I didn't think the Geiger counter oh. worked over there. Oh, in Turkey. <laughs> One of the reasons for its appearance was to command Rabbi Karo and his colleagues to ascend to the Holy Land, where the reception of divine enlightenment is pure. <clears throat> It's interesting that the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox Jews, the ones that parade around in their little black suits, the dominant faith in the land of Israel, that is a religion that was concocted in the 1800s by Baal Shem Tov in Ukraine. So much for the divine Geiger counter. The classic treatise on the Jewish faith, Ha Karuzi, written by Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, calls the Holy Land the land of prophecy. He states, whoever prophesied did so either in the Holy Land or concerning it. For example, the prophecy which Abraham, A-V is no B in Hebrew, but nonetheless, Avenue received in Chuchla Eretz, the Dispora. Lek, Leka was to command him to go to Israel. <coughs> Similarly, the prophecy which Moshe Rabbanu, rabbis are now claiming Moshe was a rabbi too, received in Egypt and in the Sinai wilderness was to make the children of Israel out of bondage and bring them to the promised land as the Torah recounts in Hashim, from Ha and Shim, name, 
first appeared to him at the burning bush. It's actually the crag of the mountain. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I come down to deliver them out of the hand of Mitzrayim and to bring them out of the land to a good and large, uh, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Shemot 3.8. That's not how I remember reading it. No. In the healthy, normative state of the Jewish people, I didn't know that. There is a healthy, healthy, normative state for the Jewish people. When they live in their unique holy land, you know, the only Hebrew word that's close to holy is choli. And yeah, it essentially means repulsive. Phenomenon like Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration, it's not what, what Ruach and it's not Ruach HaKodesh. It's the Ruach HaKodesh. And, and it means set apart spirit. And yes. prophecy are the natural norm. Me thinks y'all may disagree. Our sages, this rabbi said, inform us that in the time of King Saul, there were 200 prophets called Zophim. The Gemara states, there were, as we have learned throughout history, a great many prophets in Israel. Double the amount of people who left Egypt. <laughs> who would have known? Who would have worked for? Ruach HaKodesh can appear anywhere in the world. The home of prophecy is in Eretz, Israel. Our sages stated, What's wrong with quoting Yahweh? What? I don't know. What's wrong <laughs> with... Better, no. <laughs> Our sages stated, the divine presence is not revealed abroad. Wait a minute. Really? You said he can appear <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> but it can't appear abroad. Okay. <clears throat> Inaccurate according to Yahweh's actual prophets. Matter of fact, in... Um, uh, okay. In Yashaya, Yahweh says that I'm assigning the full Megillicati of, uh, of prophets to the Choder. Seven of them. And uh, he needs, uh, not prophets, but spirits. So he's going to have all seven spirits uh, aiding uh, his work. And in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, when uh, Solomon uh, inaugurates the, uh, the temple, he says that this individual will be a foreigner living in a foreign land. So methinks God uh, disagrees. <laughs> so, <laughs> my, my. Therefore, therefore, he goes on to say, when the prophet Yonah wanted to cease prophesying, he fled from the land of Israel, as it says, but Yonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went abroad and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Jonah 1.3 and 1.10 also. It doesn't say he was fleeing the set-apart spirit, does it? Or even Yahweh. Mm. In his writings on the land of Israel, Rabbi Kook, yeah, it's uh, Rabbi Kook, <laughs> teaches. <laughs> it, you can't make this stuff up. No, it is no. A, no. It is impossible for a Jew to be devoted and faithful to his uh, contemplations. 
logical reason, conceptualizations, and uh, imaginizations when he is outside the land of Israel. Well, then, why don't we just uh, forego the uh, Herodim and recognize that uh, ultra-Orthodox Judaism was created uh, by a numbskull uh, who may have been illiterate, for all we know, because he wrote nothing, Baal Shem Tov, in, uh, in Ukraine. Yep. Yep. So it must be illogical, unreasonable, unfaithful, <laughs> undevoted. So let's retire the black suits. When, when they handed down the Torah, you know, to the oral Torah, that other one? The yeah, I guess. Uh, Moshe was on the hill. Yeah, I don't well, think oh, that yeah, was well, 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 The Torah is the Babylonian Torah, is it not? It was compiled in yeah. Babylon, which According is why it's called the Babylonian Torah. And is the Babylonian no. Torah not the essence of the religion of Islam? I'm assuming the, Isla, uh, the religion of uh, Judaism? Yeah, and if that's the case, how in the world can this nincompoop say that if you're outside of Israel, you've got no divine? Well, it's true. The Babylonian Torah is rubbish. Uh, the Zohar was actually written in Spain, so mm-hmm. if we apply this guy's rule, we would come to the conclusion it is rubbish, uh, although we don't need that. When he's outside the land of Israel, compared to the quality and faithfulness of Eretz Israel, revelations of holiness on whatever level can clean, are clean in Eretz Israel according to their level. While outside of the land of Israel, they are mixed with abundant dross and impure husks. Well, this, as I say, lie under means the Babylonian Talmud, which was written in, guess where, Babylon, as well as the foundation of Hasidic ultra-Orthodox <laughs> Judaism, which was conceived within Ukraine. The Zohar, as I mentioned, was written in Spain. But let's not confuse the... Similarly, the Arizal forecast student, or foremost student, Rabbi Kaim Vittel, writes and should the seeker of Ruach Kodesh, be outside the land of Israel, even if he is an absolute Sadek. <coughs> God, what? You know, I, I um, had a critic um, make a couple of comments about uh, uh, chapter two. Of, I think it was in uh, Questing Paul's what he read. <coughs> a Jewish critic. And he besmirched uh, Questing Paul because he says, you know, your transliterations are old. Uh, you're uh, you're using a form that isn't uh, in contemporary use. The contemporary use, of course, is to misrepresent the letters that actually composed the words. And so right. it's T-Z-A-D-D-I-K. The word is Sadak. It's a T-S-A-D-A-Q. And if you aren't going to spell the words correctly, then you're going to be confused on the really important ones like Yahweh's name. Mm-hmm. Even if he is absolutely Sadek uh, as opposed to Sadak, which means he can't be Sadek if he's not doesn't even know how to spell Sadak, which means right. Without any impediments of sin, behold, the barriers of the defilement of Chutzla Eretz, the Dispora, <coughs> combined with his personal sin of living outside the land of Israel, 
will prevent true and holy divine perception from reaching him. That's another rabbinical quote. This uh, axiom was reiterated by Rabbi uh, Eliyahu of Vilna, commonly known as Vilna Gaon, and an amazing story related by his greatest student, Rabbi Kaim Volozian. <clears throat> I was personally involved <clears throat> with the magnitude of Gion's divine revelation when our rabbi, referring to the Gion of Vilna, sent me to my brother, the holy and pious giant of our teacher, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, of blessed memory. Can you imagine these Jewish religious deceivers saying anything this magnanimous about Yahweh? Nope. Never happens. Oh, although younger than me in age, my brother is greater than I in every way. The Gion of Vilna commanded me to tell him in his name not to give audience to any angel or heavenly messenger that would shortly appear to him. The Gion explained that even though the Beit Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, had a Magid appear to him, this was 200 years ago when the generations were pure and he lived in Israel, especially here in Vilna, outside of the land of Israel. It is impossible that the entire divine revelation will be purely holy without any mixture of foreign unholy husk. This is a perplexing restriction that they are placing on the Almighty God, who created the entire universe, which is just a smidgen larger than the borders of Israel. Nonetheless, they, they do like to, to restrict God. Because the channel of imagination is the faculty of the mind, that is used to receive divine revelation. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, actually saying it and having people believe the channel of imagination. In other words, I'm making this shit up, idiot. <laughs> this is the faculty of the mind that is used to receive divine revelation. If it is not functioning properly, if a person is located in a place where spiritual static sounds like ultra-Orthodox Judaism, then the message is received will be tainted by dross. In Israel, our imaginations, our imaginations are pure, okay, and healthy. By contrast, outside the land, the channel of imagination yeah. is sullied with a mixture of impure forces, which roam freely throughout the polluted spiritual realms of the nations. What do you want to bet that he wrote in, uh, in some form of Yiddish uh, goyim? In another essay on Orot Rabbi Kook, oh, we're back to Rabbi Kook, well, that's entertaining, uh, sharpens the distinction between the spiritual worlds of Eretz Yisrael and the lands of the Goyim. He writes, the imagination in the land of Israel is lucid and clear, clean and pure, and ready for the revelation of divine truth and for the embodiment of the high uplifted will of the idealistic trend which is found in the higher echelons of holiness. That's why 
the head of the uh. Shah's religious party is a two-time uh, convicted felon. <laughs> it is prepared for the explanation of prophecy. That's why they don't understand any of the prophets. I mean, how can you receive prophecy if you don't understand any of the prophets? And it's light their for the enlightenment of oh, for the enlightenment of Ruach Hakodesh and its illumination. Moron, you read Hebrew and you don't know that Ruach is a feminine word? And it's not it's, it's her. Mm-hmm. In contrast, the faculty of the imagination, well, they're really keen on that, <clears throat> which is found in the land of the Goyim is murky, clouded in darkness, and shadows of defilement and pollution. That's funny, that's what God says of Judaism. It cannot rise to the heights of holiness and it cannot form the foundation for the influx of divine light that rises above all of the baseness of the worlds and their oppressive straits. Because the intellect and the imagination are bound up together and act and interact upon one and another. The intellect, which is outside of the land of Israel, is also incapable of being illuminated with the light that exists within Israel. The air of Eretz Israel causes wisdom. I, and I, thought, I really thought that the Torah was the teaching guide and that the prophets mm-hmm. collectively with the Torah, uh, along with uh, those of Mizmor and Mashal, we're capable of providing wisdom, but um, I guess I'm wrong. It's the heir of Israel that uh, provides wisdom. It's a wonder that, uh, little wonder that these rabbis quote themselves to promote their delusions and avoid Yahweh's testimony to the contrary. But nonetheless, should we be looking for plastering over and whitewashing? I think we have found the mother load. This means that if we had a Geiger counter that could measure the divine presence in the land of Israel, the meter would crackle like crazy while outside the land it would crackle, hardly be heard. And the dial would point towards the lower end of the scale. Does this mean that if you don't live in Israel, you cannot connect with Hashem? Not at all. Even though the Vilna Gaon bemoans the impure level of Ruach Kodesh outside of Israel. The levels of Ruach Kodesh can appear there. Boy, the poor set apart spirit. She's like in a prison. Let the girl roam. Wow. She created an entire universe. And you're going to limit her to the borders of Israel? What then is the secret? How were the Villa Gaon and other Tazdikim able to attain high levels of Ruach HaKodesh in the spiritually polluted environment of Chusla Eretz, the Diaspora? The answer is wanting to live in Israel. Oh, you don't have to live in Israel so long as you want to live there. The Villa Vilna Gaon genuinely yearned to ascend to the land of Israel. He pleaded with tears for his students to make 
Eliyah to be above Yah and to begin to resettle the promised land in order to advance the redemption of Israel. Why does it have to be redeemed if it's the pure place? He himself left his possessions behind and set off for the Holy Land without his wife and children until he was mysteriously prevented. See the letter of the Grah to his wife upon his departure for Israel. Oh, goodness. Well, should you be interested in talking to a stone wall? Should you want to rebuke Rabbi David Sampson for his claims that rabbis are prophets? He is Rosh Yeshiva of YTA, the Jerusalem Torah Academy, and the founding dean of the King Solomon Academy Online School. He is the author of four popular books on the teachings of Rabbi Kook and the recent books of Contact about prophecy and divine inspiration and English translation of Rabbi Kook's Rosh Milen on the Hebrew letters, all available at Amazon Books. He also teaches classes at the, uh, in Jewish meditation. And his future address will be next to his fellow rabbis in Sheol, uh, just in case you'd like to reach him in his permanent residence. I find it reassuring that when the religious admit to doing precisely what Yahweh has condemned, it is as if God could see into the future and is holding them accountable based on their own testimony. Not only have they admitted to receiving prophecies that Yahweh did not inspire by plastering over God's message with their own, they're also guilty of whitewashing the evidence Yahweh has provided. Do you notice that in all of that, there wasn't the single revelation of a prophecy that one of these nincompoops made that actually materialized? No one mentioned Yahweh's name. Yeah. This uh, is the bane of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and that all three religions claim that the Torah, prophets, and Psalms were inspired by God, and then they plaster over his words with their own in the Talmud, New Testament, and Quran. In so doing, they concealed the truth as it was originally written, and then bring their lies to the forefront, putting their religious myths right over the top of Yahweh's testimony. In most early religions, the name and title Habel, the Lord addressed their uh, sun god, Baal, the Lord was worshipped as a fertility deity whose rites of death and resurrection were celebrated seasonally by the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, and ceremonies that included human sacrifice, of course, temple prostitution. Their graven image associated with Baal, the Lord was a bull, a golden calf, because the sun is in the constellation of Taurus during the spring equinox. When it crosses the equator at noon, it is believed to have impregnated Mother Earth, represented by Ishtar, Astarte, Asherah, the goddess Christians unwittingly venerate on Easter during the first sun day of spring. The sun is then resurrected nine months later at the winter solstice. Bows the Lord's birthday, the dates early Christians chose to designate as Christmas. This was initially the birthday of Tammuz and Mesopotamia became the birthday of Mithras in Rome. 
One was Baal's predecessor, the other a derivative. Sun gods, like the Lord Baal, were all known by the sign of the cross. This imagery predates Christianity throughout the pagan mythologies. It was only Christians, though, that elevated the cross to a death stake so that the symbol of their religion was a dead god on a stick. I'm sure it makes Yahweh so happy. Therefore, when Constantine claimed to have seen the sign of the dead god on a stick superimposed before the sun while allegedly hearing under this sign conquer, he was revealing the source of his inspiration. Moreover, all of the repulsive notions associated with religion, the idea of worshiping tortured and dead God has to be this one has to be among the worst the sun God Baal the Lord was represented by a circular halo disc the same halo the Roman Catholic Church has had its artisans placed over the head of their saints turging the Virgin Mary and the Lord Jesus Christ apostles of Baal the other symbols of the Christian religion the church was also derived from Baal's son identity. The word church cannot be found in the Torah, not in the prophets or the Psalms. There is nothing even close to its sound. And so it goes on and on. Fortunately, on behalf of the Israelites who were observant, who come to know Yom and who survived the time of Jacob's trouble, God inspired Hosea to write. Therefore, when I return, I will grasp hold of my grain, which will be increasing and growing, for having observed this banner at this time. Along with my new wine as an inheritance, as part of his continuing witness to the appointed meetings, then I will rescue and defend, indeed save, by delivering my linen to cover and conceal her nakedness. That is Hosha 2.9. Now this was written in first person. It says, when I return. Well, if you're carrying this around in your Bible, Christian, then you're in, true, in serious trouble. Because that means that Jesus isn't returning. You're in serious uh, trouble, uh, uh, Jews, because Yahweh wrote this in first person and said he's returning. That means he's been here before. That means God can have a corporeal presence. That means the man who's uh, the God whose name you're afraid to say will be here on earth. It's just as Yahweh was here to lead his people to the promised land, he will return to bring his wayward children back home. In this case, the Dagon grain, God is selecting, accepting, and receiving to himself. It represents saved souls. These are the fortunate individuals who are Daga, increasing in number and growing in stature at the at the proper time, which is in in advance of Yahweh's arrival. According to the etymology, they have Dagal Hugh closely examined his banner, one God has raised on their behalf. The fact that you are reading 
these words if you're reading along with us or listening to them. Deep into, now this is the eighth volume of Yadayawa, and are within 11 years of his return. You are likely counted among these individuals. The <coughs> Tarosh wine of inheritance delivered uh, Ba Moad Hugh as part of the eternal witness regarding the restoring appointments. When phrased this way is particularly revealing. From the very beginning, as the first words were translated and considered, we have known and shared that the first four Moadim, Pesach, Matzah, Bakodim, and Shabuah, provide the benefits of the covenant, which is our inheritance from Yahweh. This realization is immediately and immensely affirming and profoundly important as well as unique to what you are listening to uh, as part of this message uh, included in Yada Yahweh. <laughs> His people uh, will be directed to the Moed Mikre in this way by this manner. Therefore, Yahweh is predicting that someone sharing this rebuke of his people with God explicitly disinheriting Israel for being overtly religious would at the same time explain that the Moedim were conceived to remedy this problem. He would announce prior to Yahweh's return that an increasing number of Israelites would grow in stature as a result of reading this banner. Wow. Prophecy being fulfilled in our hearing. Yeah. Now, Kirk, I think you had sent me a note. Was it uh, this statement that uh, you had analyzed some of the words to uh, ascertain um, what God was saying beyond what I have shared, or is it a, uh, the next passage we're going to read? Well, actually, I was leading up to about where we are right now, as, as I did. But uh, to reassure everyone, you can the uh, the uh, in 2.9 or 2.9, uh, all of those are metaphors for the characteristics of, of these people, which I thought kind of interesting. You know, you had the grain and the wine and the wool and the linen and cover and, and the nakedness, and I, I deduced them all from the. Uh, from the letters as well, the ancient uh, pictographs, and uh, that's exactly what it what it says. It reinforces everything. This was this was a easy up to this point. It was an easy translation for me because it was so accurate uh, and so easy as far as that's exactly what the words mean. What what really bugged me was that diatribe from that uh, from Rabbi Cook and the other ones. Or Carol Syrup guy, I call him Carol Syrup, and um, it was, and I even uh, and I went on some little sides. The reason I didn't get as much done last night as I had hoped is I went on some little sides, like uh, when you mentioned synagogue, and I, I'd never looked up synagogue, and uh, it's it, it's a religious building for worship and prayer, and instruction into their Torah. I mean, there's nothing could be worse. I mean, it's yeah. uh, so it, it just not to everything, mention synagogue. The, synagogue is a Greek word, you know that the book it's of a Greek word on top of yes, it. Yes, yeah. yeah, speak of of trying to reject Greek influence, and yet 
Uh, the Talmud is written in a Greek rhetorical style, and the, uh, the kippah that they wear on their heads is the derivative of the Greek religion. Um, uh, they were heavily influenced by the Greeks and have named their, their building after the Greeks. I mean, uh, Christians have done the same thing. They've named their god using the Greek language. Um, there is no yeah. Jesus in Hebrew. There is no Christ in Hebrew. Um, so uh, it's amazing the influence of the Greek language on Judaism and, and Christianity. Yeah. You know, when I when I look up synagogue, though, in a religious context, not a religious context, but in a, a, uh, a um, translation context, when those tools, it spit out two words that I was stunned because I don't relate the synagogue to these things. It was netzach, uh, which is uh, enduring, preeminent, uh, ongoing uh, course of action, a continuation. Of, and it works that way in, in the letters as well with the nun carrying on and is protected and refreshed. And then the second word it kicked out was the moed, appointment meetings of time, you know, a festival feasts. And, and which are all very easily to explain their meaning through the letters as well. So I thought, uh, what a what a strange um, connotation these people put on their on their words and so forth. I just, uh, but it's it's. Oh well, I want to ask you one other thing while I got you and you still. Uh, I don't want you to lose your voice just yet. As you were reading that thing and they're talking about well, where prophecy, of course, there are no prophets. He said there's not going to be any more prophets. I, I thought two things. One of them I, I was jotting down was the um, think how far we've come and and how much more we've learned by studying the prophets from the Torah, uh, last one being 2,500, 2,700 years ago, versus uh, asking Yahweh for something new. I mean, we, yeah. we have... We 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 are so rich with knowledge and understanding now, and it's, it's easy to understand by reading these things and doing a little bit of study of your own. Uh, I know um, yeah. everyone I know does this, and we have uh, we're not even through. I mean, Correct. things you started out when I wrote okay. this last night when I took my notes last night from this passage. I uh, then you, you you started out the show talking to us about these what's not. Uh, mm-hmm. Which can be proven as as any type of uh, should even be in the Torah. Yes. As they slip all these things in from time to time, and now is what a remarkable thing just to learn from the Torah. Nobody wants to listen to God. I, 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 it's just yeah. Amazing. There's a, enough the in between the between the Torah and and uh, valid more the, the prophets yeah. that are yeah. easily validated. Uh, uh-huh. Is is uh, is I think he's the most important prophet for Jews to listen to is Hosha, uh, uh-huh. because God I, represents exactly this direct is the nature to of our relationship. This is why we're in this mess, and this is what's going to happen in the future. I think that Hosha is the best. So I'd actually recommend that uh, if, if uh, somebody who has rejected Judaism begins in the Yeti Iowa series in, in volume eight, uh, uh, which is uh, on the book of Hosha, um, but. You know, prophets like uh, Yashaya is my buddy. Uh, brilliant orator. Uh, every word is true. Uh, Yermiah, the same thing. Zachariah, Malachi. Uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, Moshe. Uh, Dode was a brilliant prophet, maybe the most.
most brilliant of all the prophets and his uh, Mismore. We have so much material that you could spend 10 lifetimes and not plumb the depths of it. <laughs> so <laughs> it still has merit, I think, to occasionally go, I mean, we've been doing this now for 21 years, to go into the uh, the books that are not quite as, no, not quite, that aren't even remotely as credible because there are still insights we can glean from them. Um, you know, we're not mm-hmm. going to spend an inordinate amount of time and, and Daniel and, uh, and Ezekiel uh, will move back to the Torah prophets and, uh, and Psalms. But uh, there is such a wealth of material that this notion that you would ask God for new prophecy or new insights, why? Right. Yeah. He told you from the beginning to the end already. Right. Step along the way. And so what do you want? The <laughs> amount of material about the last days is almost overwhelming. Yeah. We know so much about it. So what are we going to gain to have an, another revelation? Um, I, I don't uh, get the uh, desire for it when uh, when there's so much for us to uh, to study. Well, in this <laughs> passage, the Tyrosh wine of inheritance <laughs> delivered by the Moed Hugh as part of the eternal is eternal witness regarding the restoring appointments. <clears throat> when it's uh, phrased this way, it is exceedingly um, uh, revealing. And uh, God is saying, uh, right from the beginning, as the first words were translated and considered, <clears throat> something that we have known and shared uh, about these, these uh, revelations, that, that this is how God is delivering uh, the benefits of his covenant. And so <clears throat> when we compare God's picture and what he is saying, um, that upon his return, he, Natsau, will rescue and defend, spare and save by delivering his wool and linen, which are symbolic of his children's everyday and special occasion apparel. God's going to clothe his children. Mm-hmm. There is actually a loving um, portrayal of, uh, of, of God dealing with his children. He says, you know, there was a time that I loved you. And when I loved you, I, I adorned you in, in the finest cloths. And, and I actually put on and laced your sandals. Uh, and I, I, I covered you in the, the most beautiful of linens. And, and I bathed you to purify you. It's of a, a loving father doting over his child. <laughs> and that's what God's saying here. I'm here to clothe you again. Why do we need God to clothe us? Because he even said this in, this, uh, uh, in, the, pro- in the prophecy in uh, Ezekiel, which is why we study even uh, things that are occasionally uh, incorrect. Because he said, <laughs> you have a, a, a nakedness in terms of your, your own personal um, proclivities that are really unattractive. And, and so to be around you, what I want to do is I want to make you beautiful. You know, it's God's putting on this garment of light where we appear perfect in his eyes. And this is what he's doing here. I, I, I want to clothe you. Because it's for darn sure the Jews that are running around in the black morning suits don't know how to dress. 
So just as he had with the children uh, during the Exodus, um, what he did uh, during the uh, Yatza Exodus from Mitzrayel, it was mm-hmm. his job to clothe his children and to conceal our imperfections and deficiencies. The great connection. It is. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful wow, story wow, about what Yahweh great. wants to do. Yeah. In this <laughs> regard, terms, yeah. I have some thoughts I think are, are worth considering here. Yahweh's first encounter with humankind was in the garden with Adam and with Chava whom uh, I was just reading that uh, volume the other day, that uh, volume called Adam, and I said that uh, uh, Chawa means life giver, which is how it's defined in every lexicon. It actually doesn't mean life giver. Uh, It would be uh, C-H-A-Y-A-H if it was life giver. Uh, Chawa actually means she speaks her mind. She, uh, She makes bold uh, declarations. What uh, Chawa did is that she wanted to be like God, uh, which is why she uh, ate the fruit. So Chawa means uh, this is the woman who speaks out and declares what she uh, she actually thinks. So Adam and Chawa <coughs> were um, where he enjoyed a close personal relationship. And his second series of interactions transpired when uh, he appeared in the form of a man and walked and talked with uh, Abraham. This is the relationship which gave birth to the bereft covenant. So Yahweh's third visit was to observe uh, Jacob's wrestling match with uh, Satan in which the patriarch proved himself worthy uh, of being Yisrael. Although that's a very complex uh, passage. Yahweh's witness to, uh, to mankind. His fourth appearance was with Moshe and later to all the children of Israel during the Yatza Exodus when he, over the course of 40 days, authored and inspired the Torah from the top of the mountain. Yahweh would return <coughs> to meet with Shamuel uh, near the Ark of the Covenant in Shiloh. Of this event we read, <coughs> Yahweh came, stood, and spoke to Shamuel, appearing so as to be seen, revealing and disclosing himself as the word of Yahweh. Now, I don't know how uh, Yahweh looked and appeared to Shamuel. Uh, we do know that uh, he looked like uh, a man when he appeared uh, to, uh, to Abraham. Abraham. Uh, yeah. And this certainly has that same he walked with you. that he stood and yeah. Yeah, stood with him. Uh, now, that does not mean that all of God fits into the form of man. Uh, it mm. means that uh, God took some of his spiritual energy and, and cast it into uh, a, uh, a being that at least appeared to be a physical being. Um, energy and uh, matter are really the same thing, just different amounts of the same thing. So it's very easy for an energy-based being to project some of his nature in a material way, where it would be essentially impossible to go the uh, the other way. Uh, <clears throat> so this is a tough statement for uh, Judaism, where one of the Rambam's uh, 13 laws of Judaism that God is incorporeal. He uh, didn't say yeah. that. Yeah, he didn't say that uh, to uh, uh, to demean uh, God. His purpose was to demean Christianity. And, you know, to a large degree, 
rabbinical Judaism uh, is uh, a retort to Christianity. Uh, it began mm-hmm. at the same time, and it exists in large degree to confront the claims of, uh, of Christians. Uh, and while the Christianity needed to be challenged, I mean, it's wrong. Um, there was no Jesus. Um, the individual's name was Yosha. Uh, he was not God. He was not the Messiah. He was not the Son of God. Uh, the Messiah and Son of God uh, are dote. And he was, however, the Passover lamb. And so by besmirching him, uh, Jews have foreclosed on the benefit of Passover, which is eternal life. And <coughs> by not uh, stating that Dode is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that it's Dode who's returning, Christians got away with perpetrating this fraud, which later would come to uh, harass Jews and oppress them more than any other religion or institution in human history. So it was a f- terrible um, retort to the religion. Well, during the sixth encounter with humankind, Yahweh came to save us from themselves by projecting his nefesh consciousness into Yosha, God would serve as the Pesach Ael, the Passover lamb. He fulfilled the first four Moedim, eternal witnesses of the restoring testimony, in year 4000, yeah, 33 CE. In fact, this is really one of the benefits of holding our nose and entering Babylon to uh, analyze the text of uh, Daniel. Because the ninth chapter of Daniel actually sets the exact date that Yosha uh, left Bethlehem as the Passover lamb uh, to enter Jerusalem four days before Passover in year 4000 Yah, which was 33 CE. Knowing that date, we can go forward to Yahweh's return and, and recognize it's going to be a Yom Kippurim in years 2033, 40 Yobel thereafter. We can go back in time, mm-hmm. 40 Yobel, to know exactly when Yahweh promised to provide the Passover lamb in his meeting with Abraham on Mount Moriah, and that's uh, 1968 BCE. We can go back another 40 Yobel or 2,000 years, and we know exactly when Chawa and Adam were expelled from the garden, year zero. Yeah. And right in the middle of that time, is this glorious existence of Dode's life, the actual Messiah, the Son of God, our shepherd, uh, and our returning king. So these are the advents, if you will, of, uh, of Yahweh. Uh, they are eternal, and, and as I said, he, he came in 4,000 Yah, in 33 CE, to provide the benefits of the covenant, which are eternal life, being perfected, adopted, empowered, and enriched, <coughs> all of which are addressed in Hosha's prophetic statement. <coughs> Yahweh's return, <coughs> as specified in this prophetic pronouncement, will represent his seventh and final appearance to his children on earth. It will transpire beginning on Yom Kippurim, which is the day of reconciliations. That's what Kippurim means. Uh, it's plural, reconciliations. Uh, it's not the day of atonement. It's not the day of afflicting one's soul. It's not a high holy day. It's not a day to twirl tormented chickens above your head. Yom Kippurim is a wonderful 
celebration of, of reconciliation, when not only is Yisrael and Yahuda uh, reconciled uh, one to the other, are reconciled unto Yahweh. It will be a small remnant of Yehudim that will enjoy this festive occasion, but it will occur in year 6,000 Yah, October 2nd at sunset in Jerusalem, in the Yobel year of 2033 CE. And that is when all of the wonderful things predicted in Hosea's prophecy will come to fruition. And this time, Yah will remain with us, Sukkah, camping out with the covenant's children during the seventh day from year 6,000 to 7,000 Yah. All presented dutifully by the prophet Zechariah. And while this encompasses the greatest offer ever made, and while this is with our knowledge and consent, uh, we can capitalize upon it. Should anyone not accept Yahweh, should someone reject his words, fail to attend his moed, or spurn his offer of the kernel of truth which causes us to grow, and the wine of inheritance, even the adornment which conceals our imperfections, then those individuals will be judged unfit to be seen in this light. They will either cease to exist or spend eternity in the darkness separated from Yahweh. <clears throat> oh, Kirk and Dee, we, we have come to the end of our recorded uh, period. Normally we would go on uh, a little bit uh, longer. Yeah, uh, you well. you yeah. are more welcome to do so, but um, I'm going to arrest my uh, my voice. I'm surprised that it lasted this long, my my wife's special brew, Dee, you even told me that it would work. Yeah. <laughs> made it made it for an hour and well, a half. We'll so unfortunately, in the last 15 minutes, it ran out. And that's why my coffee came back. So uh, all we need now is a larger cup next time. Let's pick it up next week. Yeah, and, uh, you know, normally yeah. uh, we have a lot more... Uh, uh, testimony from Yahweh uh, and uh, less uh, from uh, the religious poops. But um, I think it's important to reinforce with, uh, with our primary audience, which is Jews. I mean, that's, that's who we write for. That's who Yahweh is reaching out to. Uh, that's who yes. we care about. That's what this sign is for. That we recognize that it's one thing for us to read Yahweh's testimony and say that God despises Judaism and that unless you're willing to reject Judaism, uh, you can't even approach him. Uh, it's one thing for us to say. It's another thing for, the Jew, for religious Jews to prove that God's right. Now, it's one thing for God to say that, that uh, Judaism is filled with false prophets. It's another thing to hear the rabbis talk about being prophets. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> excuse me, that's why we we choose to intervene these and, and have programs like that. And, and uh, you know, we did talk probably for 20 minutes uh, tonight about items in the news. 
And that's also important because God said mm-hmm. that we are entering a time of trouble. We're entering a time where, where, where it's going to be hell on earth, um, particularly for Jews, and about the things that were crumbling so that our listeners might begin to become less reliant on government, less reliant on religion, more open to God's solution, then we would not be preparing our audience, which is our primary responsibility, for Yahweh's return. Our job is to prepare listeners so that they are ready for Yahweh's return, which means you need to know his name, you need to know what he's offering and what he's expecting in return. You need to know what you have to disassociate from before you can engage with him. And so it's important for you to know just how rotten your political institutions are, your religious institutions are, and how fastly humankind is degrading. And that's why we share it mm-hmm. along with Yahweh's testimony. And if you study Yahweh's testimony, one of the very first things that you learn is that God does not provide his witness in a vacuum. He's telling us when he's revealing these words, what's happening around them, what the various how various nations and people and individuals and things are interacting at the time. So it's a very news-rich environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it keeps it real. Um, and the, his testimony is revealed through people who are real with flaws and um, very much like us. Yeah. yeah. So that's the reason we, we do bring these things together. It's a, it's a cohesive whole. The more we know, the, the, the better God looks. The more informed we are, the more likely we are going to, uh, to embrace God. And he is worth knowing. His name is Yahweh, and he has revealed himself through his Torah, prophets, and psalms. And he is liberating and enriching, powering, yeah. uh, extraordinarily loving and caring. He's very, very different, however, than the religious portrayals of God. Um, and rather than believe him or worship him or pray to him, he asks us to listen to him to learn from him and to approach him on our feet, ready to engage in a mutually beneficial and uplifting relationship. <laughs> All right, before I completely crash, I bid you good night. Look forward to being with you this time next week. Happy Shabbat and may Yah bless. Shabbat. Feel better, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Ha, <laughs>